Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Carla Faye Tucker. But first, your true crime headlines. The New Hampshire Attorney General's Office confirmed the identities of three of the four bodies that were found in steel barrels in Bear Brook State Park in 1985, a case that was chronicled in the popular Bear Brook podcast. The first big break in the notorious cold case came in 2017, when investigators were able to use genetic genealogy to identify the killer, a con man and career criminal named Terry Rasmussen. Rasmussen died in prison in 2010 while serving his sentence for another murder conviction. In addition to the Bear Brook murders, Rasmussen is also believed to have been responsible for several other killings. At this week's press conference, the three victims were identified as Marlise Honeychurch and her two daughters, Marie Vaughn and Sarah McWaters. Honeychurch had been dating Rasmussen and brought him to a Thanksgiving gathering at her mother's house in 1978. After a disagreement with family members, Honeychurch left with Rasmussen. It was the last time the family members would see the young mother or her children. Their bodies were discovered in 1985, dismembered and stuffed into steel barrels. A fourth body was also found at the same time and remains unidentified. That victim, a young female child, is not biologically related to the other victims, but DNA tests showed that she is the biological daughter of Terry Rasmussen, her killer. A South Carolina father convicted of murdering his five kids showed no emotion as the jury handed down their verdicts this week, finding him guilty on five counts of murder and rejecting his insanity defense. Timothy Ray Jones Jr., who was described as a fanatical religious fundamentalist, was convicted of murdering his five children ranging in age from one to eight years old and then driving around with their decomposing bodies for nine days before dumping them on a desolate stretch of road in Alabama. His lawyers claimed that he snapped after his wife had an affair with a neighbor and that he was overwhelmed by taking care of five kids alone. They tried to convince the jury that he was suffering from undiagnosed schizophrenia and didn't know what he was doing when he killed the children. He is facing the death penalty and will return to court next week to learn his fate. An online genealogy database that has helped investigators solve numerous high-profile cold cases has updated their privacy policy, giving its users more control over who can access their genetic information and making it more difficult for investigators to use their site to help crack cold cases. GED Match, the public DNA database that was instrumental in helping to identify Golden State Killer suspect Joseph D'Angelo last year, announced important changes to their privacy policy last month. Notable among these changes is one that requires users to manually opt in to allowing law enforcement to access their genetic information for the purpose of solving a crime. Previously, all users had been opted in by default, but could manually opt themselves out. Changing this policy effectively opts out all of the 1.2 million existing users on the site, who will now have to opt themselves back in to make the genetic information available to investigators. Genealogists have been able to solve more than 50 cold case rapes and murders using information found on public DNA databases like GED Match, which have swelled in popularity over the past few years. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.
Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Carla Faye Tucker, the brutal murder of two people, and a killer who even the Pope asked to be forgiven. This is the story of how Carla Tucker's life met a grisly, unforgiven end. Carla Faye Tucker had a difficult childhood. Born in Houston, Texas on November 18, 1959, the youngest of three sisters, Carla's parents had a troubled marriage. By age eight, she and her sisters had begun smoking cigarettes. At 10, her parents divorced. Through the divorce proceedings, Carla learned that her birth was the result of an extramarital affair. By age 12, Carla was on drugs and began having sex. By 14, Carla had dropped out of school and her mother Carolyn had pushed her into prostitution. Carolyn was a rock groupie who took Carla on the road following bands like the Allman Brothers, the Marshall Tucker Band, and the Eagles. At just 16 years old, Carla was briefly married to a mechanic named Stephen Griffith. Despite all of this, when Carla's mother died from the effects of drug abuse on Christmas Eve of 1979, when Carla was only 20, it devastated her, ending her relationship with the only person she said had ever really loved her. In her early 20s, Carla began hanging around with bikers and met a woman named Sean Dean and her husband, Jerry Lynn Dean. They quickly became friends, sharing many of the same vices. In 1981, the couple introduced Carla to their friend, Daniel Ryan Garrett. Everyone called him Danny. Danny was 35, and Carla was still just 21, but the two were smitten with one another. They started dating, and as their relationship blossomed, Carla and Danny began discussing their plans. But these were not the normal plans young couples have. The pair were strung out on drugs and desperate for cash. They had expensive habits and had run out of money. One weekend, after the pair had indulged their narcotic vices, they hatched a plan. They knew that Jerry Dean had assets that could be sold for cash. They knew that Jerry had been restoring a motorcycle. It was worth more money than the couple could cobble together. Jerry was now estranged from Carla's friend Sean, and Carla disliked Jerry because he had once parked the motorcycle in her living room and let it drain oil into her carpet. He had also destroyed her only pictures of her mother. 
Carla and Danny decided to steal the motorcycle. They wouldn't even need to break in. Sean had lost her set of keys a few weeks before, and Carla had found them. They had the perfect way to sneak into the apartment without making a sound. They could even steal Jerry's car and make the most of their burglary. At 3 a.m. on Monday, June 13, 1983, high on a cocktail of methadone, Valium, heroin, marijuana, rum, tequila, and other drugs, Carla and Danny made their move. Their plan was to sneak into Jerry's home and steal the classic motorcycle that he was restoring. Once they had it, they could sell it to a buyer. They brought a friend with them, James LeBrant, to make sure that they weren't outnumbered. As they walked down the street in Houston, LeBrant hung back. He went to search for Jerry's El Camino, another vehicle that they might be able to steal. Meanwhile, with Sean's keys, Carla and Danny snuck into Jerry's apartment. They went straight for the bedroom. Jerry was asleep in bed. Before he could wake up and catch his friends robbing him, Carla leapt on him and pinned Jerry's body to the bed. But Jerry fought back, trying to protect himself from the invaders. Jerry grabbed Carla by the upper arms and tried to throw her off of him. Danny panicked and scrambled for a way to intervene. Everything was going wrong. Danny's toe then kicked against a ball-peen hammer, which happened to be lying on the floor next to him. He grabbed the hammer and lunged forward. As Carla and Jerry wrestled, Danny swung the hammer. It came down hard on the back of Jerry's head, knocking him out cold. Carla stood by, shocked, as Jerry began to make gurgling noises. There was blood everywhere. Danny left the bedroom and began collecting together any spare motorcycle parts that he might be able to sell. Jerry's body was twitching, his mouth sputtering incoherently. Carla couldn't stand the sound. Jerry wouldn't stop. He gurgled and the blood flowed. As Danny stole as much as he could carry, Carla wandered through the apartment in a daze. She found a three-foot pickaxe. Grabbing hold of the axe, she returned to the bedroom. Jerry was still there, still alive, still sputtering, still gargling. Carla lifted the axe up above her head and brought it crashing down into Jerry Dean. The noise stopped. She did it again and again. Blood splattered across the bed, the walls, and the ceiling. Danny ran back into the room. As he entered, he saw what Carla had done. He took the axe from her shaking hand and dealt one final blow, driving the spike deep into Jerry's chest. When he was sure that Jerry was dead, Danny handed the pickaxe back to Carla and left to continue filling his car with stolen goods. She stood in the bedroom, holding the murder weapon. There was no more gurgling sound. But then Carla noticed another noise, breathing. It wasn't Jerry. It wasn't her. It wasn't Danny or LeBrant. Someone else was in the room. They were hiding under the bed covers, 
tangled up against the wall. The woman scrambled to get free. It was Deborah Ruth Thornton. Deborah had argued with her husband and met Jerry the night before at a party. Deborah tried to escape the tangle of sheets, but she was stuck. Carla swung the axe. Deborah ducked just in time, the point of the pickaxe grazing her shoulder. The two women fought, locked together in a blood-soaked struggle. Carla had no room to swing her axe again. Deborah was fighting for her life. Then Danny returned. He separated the two women, pulling them apart, giving Carla room to swing. This time, she didn't miss. She hit Deborah in the chest, wrenched back on the handle, and swung again. Carla struck Deborah repeatedly, later confessing that each blow of the pickaxe into the woman's chest gave her an orgasm. With one final blow, Carla drove the point of the pickaxe into Deborah's heart and left the axe buried in her body. Together with Danny and LeBrant, Carla packed up anything worth stealing and the three drove off into the night. The next morning, one of Deborah's co-workers arrived. She had been waiting for a ride and Deborah had told her where to meet. After knocking on the apartment door several times, she went inside and found the grisly scene. She ran and called the police. Detectives arrived on the scene to find Jerry beaten and stabbed to death with horrendous injuries to the back of his head and his chest punctured by 20 blows from the pickaxe. They didn't have to look far for the murder weapon, which was still embedded in Deborah's chest. The news media ran with the grisly story and it was headline news across the country. It took five weeks for police to track down the killers. The breakthrough came when Danny's own brother and one of Carla's sisters turned the pair in. Danny's brother even wore a wire while talking to Danny, extracting a confession. On July 20th, 1983, Danny and Carla were arrested. In September of 1983, Danny and Carla were indicted for murder and tried separately for the crimes. Carla was charged with the murders of both Dean and Thornton, but after she testified against Danny at his trial, the charge for the murder of Thornton was dropped. Danny was not charged with her death either. Carla entered a plea of not guilty and was jailed awaiting trial. After being imprisoned, Carla took a Bible from the prison ministry and read it in her cell. Carla became a Christian in October of 1983. She later said, I didn't know what I was reading. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of my cell floor on my knees. I was just asking God to forgive me. Carla Fay went to trial on April 11, 1984, before a jury of eight women and four men presided over by a female judge. The defense called no witnesses, and the jury retired for only 70 minutes before convicting Carla of murder. Both Carla and Danny were sentenced to death. Carla Tucker requested that her life be spared on the basis that she was under the influence of drugs at the time of the murders. She also claimed 
that she was now a reformed Christian, and that if she had not taken the drugs, the murders would never have been committed. Her pleas drew support from abroad. Among those who appealed to the state of Texas on her behalf were Pope John Paul II, Newt Gingrich, televangelist Pat Robertson, and even Ronald Carlson, the brother of murder victim Deborah Thornton. On January 18, 1998, Carla sent a letter to George W. Bush, then governor of Texas, saying, I am in no way attempting to minimize the brutality of my crime. It obviously was very, very horrible, and I do take full responsibility for what happened. I also know that justice and the law demand my life for the two innocent lives I brutally murdered that night. If my execution is the only thing, the final act that can fulfill the demand for restitution and justice, then I accept that. I will pay the price for what I did, in any way our law demands it. I was advised by my attorneys to plead not guilty, and I was trusting their legal expertise. They knew I murdered Jerry and Deborah. I did not lie to them about it. I am, in fact, guilty, very guilty. I used to try and blame my mother because she was my role model, and she fashioned and shaped me into what I was at an early age. At 14, she took me to a place where there was all men and wanted to school me in the art of being a call girl. I wanted to please my mother so much. I wanted her to be proud of me. So instead of saying no, I just tried to do what she asked. The thing is, deep down inside, I knew that what I was doing was wrong. It may have been the norm for the crowd that I was in, but it was not the norm for decent, upstanding families. I no longer try to lay the blame on my mother or on society. I don't blame drugs either. When I say that I was out of it on drugs, the night I brutally murdered two people, I fully realize that I made the choice to do those drugs. Had I chosen not to do drugs, there would be two people still alive today. But I did choose to do drugs, and I did lose it, and two people are dead because of me. I did not plan on going over there that particular night to go into that apartment to kill anyone. But that is beside the point. The fact is, we went there, we went into the apartment, we brutally murdered two precious people, and we left out of there and even bragged about what we did for over a month afterward. It was in October, three months after I had been locked up, when a ministry came into the jail and I went to the services, that night accepting Jesus into my heart. When I did this, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I began crying that night for the first time in many years, and to this day, tears are a part of my life. Carla's appeals were denied. Her conversion to Christianity did nothing to commute her sentence. On February 2, 1998, after 14 years on death row, Carla was set to be executed and ate her last meal. She asked for a banana, a peach, and a salad with ranch dressing. George W. Bush refused her final appeal for clemency, stating, I have concluded that judgments about the heart and soul of an individual on death row are best left to a higher authority. On her final day, 
Carla was said by her guards to be at peace. She wrote a letter and had two visits. She was allowed half an hour with her husband, prison minister Dana Brown, whom she had married on death row, and another half hour with a spiritual advisor. Four people were invited by Carla to her execution. Carla's sister, her husband Dana, her friend Jackie, and Ronald Carlson. Also there to witness Carla's execution were victim Deborah Thornton's husband Richard, her son, and her stepdaughter. Carla's last words were, Yes, sir, I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She looked at her husband. Baby, I love you. She looked at Ronald Carlson. Ron, give Peggy a hug for me. She looked at all present, weeping and smiling. Everybody has been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I am going to be face to face with Jesus now. Warden Baggett, thank all of you so much. You've been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. Carla Tucker was killed by lethal injection at 6.45 p.m. on February 3, 1998. As the chemicals were administered, she looked at the ceiling, praised Jesus, licked her lips, and hummed. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.